We all know that God has a sense of humor, don't you? That's why kids grow up and have kids. It's divine payback. Because if you have ever been on a trip with kids, that's always an interesting experience. Just the fascination of their eyes lighting up at something new. The problem is you have to get there first. And uh, when we lived in Kentucky, it seemed like we had to drive five or six hours to get in any, anywhere interesting. South Carolina is a wonderful place to be because you're at the beach in maybe two and a half, three hours. Uh, you're at the mountains in two hours. But even without fail, even though we don't have as far to drive to get to interesting places, we get about 45 minutes, maybe an hour down the road, and the inevitable question will come from the back seat. Yeah, who, who said that? It happened to you too? And then you answer the question... And then five minutes later, you know, have we like time warped and gone 500 miles? No. It, it, how much, are we there yet? No. It's what I said five minutes ago minus five minutes. And it just goes on and on and on and on. As a matter of fact, I love this because uh, I, I won't mention um, which of my children, uh, w- which one of my male children said this, but it's the youngest one. We had a, a choir special last night to pray about election and to worship, and the church that was hosting it is less than a five-minute drive from our house. And we get in the car, and we turn the corner, and he goes, how much longer? So, uh, and that wasn't about the musical. That was about the drive. So um, that's, that's a, a fun thing. Some of you have asked, man, we've been in Matthew for three years. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, we're there. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about the way Matthew's gospel breaks down, uh, 28 chapters, uh, the first couple of chapters deal with his infancy. And so when we talk about Jesus' adult life, you have 23 chapters that deal with his adult life. And of course, Jesus lived 32, 33, 34 years. We only really have information about his three years of his public teaching ministry. So it doesn't, it doesn't divide out evenly, but basically you've got about seven and a third chapters for each year of his teaching ministry. Well, then you get to chapter 25, and it deals, I'm sorry, chapter 26, and you're dealing with the last three days of his life. And it's three chapters just for each of those days. Like everything begins to slow down. We're there. The reason that Jesus came is to do what he is about to do. And so as we transition from chapter 25 into chapter 26... Jesus' public teaching ministry is done. There are no more sermons that he's going to preach. There's no more Sermon on the Mount. There's no Sermon on the Church. There's no Sermon on the End Times. We get into, in the beginning of chapter 26, the beginning of the crucifixion narratives, the story of his passion. And so there are still red words in your Bible. Jesus continues to teach, but it's not public. It's private. It's to his disciples. And we all fall into this bigger is better syndrome. We assume that if Jesus is preaching to 5,000, that's great. And we undervalue this private teaching. But one of the things that we'll see is while his public addresses may have come to an end, as we get into the story of his passion, the story of his crucifixion and resurrection, this is his final and his finest teaching. And so over the next four weeks, we will take a deep dive into the story of his sacrifice, into the story of his crucifixion and the narrative that unfolds uh, there. 
If you're following along, we'll do the first 35 verses of Matthew chapter 26. You can follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some uh, pew Bibles in front of you. It'll be page 703. It'll be on the uh, screen as well, and you can follow along with the little sermon outline guide that is in your bulletin. But we begin with the first part of our chapter, verses 1 through 16, talking about how Jesus' last few days begin with various preparations. They begin with various preparations. Anytime there is anything important that is going to happen in your life or my life, there is preparation that has to happen. And so what are the kinds of things that you prepare for? Some of you are already putting out your Christmas lights. And you can walk into department stores and already begin to hear the Christmas music and you see the little elves and the reindeer those, those obnoxious neighbors that you don't want their power bill because of everything that they put out, they're getting ready because it takes them longer to set up than a Scrooge like you, you know, so they've got to get it all out. Students, one of the things that's great before Christmas break comes, what happens right before Christmas break? What do you have to prepare for? Final exams. And I can hear every student going, oh, don't remind us today's Sunday. We don't have to go to school. You have to prepare. How many of you prepare to go on vacation? Like, you don't just wake up and go, let's go to California, you know? You have to, like, think about how you're actually going to get there. And, and if you are diligent in how you do your work, how many of you try to get ahead before you go on vacation? Does that work for anybody? Oh, heck no. Man, it seems like I get busier and more stressed out trying to get ahead, and no matter how much I try to get ahead, guess what happens when I come back? The work is piled up. And so you prepare not exactly the kind of preparations that we're talking about here. As we look at verses 1 through 16, at the preparations that are made, there are four specifically. And as we begin in verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus is prepared. He is prepared. He is ready for suffering and for death. The scriptures say this, when Jesus had finished saying all this, meaning chapter 25, he then told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Matthew begins with a formulaic statement. uh, When Jesus had finished saying all of this, that phrase occurs four times previously. And uh, there's some artistry, some editorial work that Matthew has done because Moses wrote the five, the first five books of the Old Testament. Matthew presents Jesus as a new Moses who has five sermons in the book of Matthew. And every time one of those sermons is done, you find this statement, when Jesus had finished saying all this. So after the Sermon on the Mount, about Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus had finished saying all this, Jesus' uh, Sermon on Mission, Matthew chapter 10, when he gets done, Matthew chapter 11, when he had finished saying all this, Jesus' message on community, Matthew chapter 18, when he gets done with it, when he had finished saying all this, Matthew 23, 24, 25, the little apocalypse, the end of the world as we know it, when Jesus had finished saying all of this. It becomes this formula indicating that this is the end of his fifth sermon. As he finishes the fifth sermon, he tells his disciples, hey, guess what? There's a big holiday coming. Kind of like for us. Thanksgiving's on its way. Make your travel plans. Smoke your turkey. Do whatever you're going to do. We need to get ready. But then he warns his disciples for the fourth time of his impending death. Yet he adds something here that is important. His death will come at the hand of betrayal, And he's not going to get hit by a bus. He's not going to get struck by lightning. He's, you know, not going to choke on a matzo ball. It's 
He's going to die, how's it say? By crucifixion. You just have to imagine, like, we hear this so casually, but crucifixion is probably the modern-day equivalent of lethal injection or the electric chair. This is a very ignoble way to die. You will never die. Well, chances are, uh, by the grace of God, none of you will die by electric chair. Doesn't mean you won't get electrocuted um, if you stick your finger in a socket, but you're not going to die a criminal's death. And you just have to imagine that all the oxygen got sucked out of the room when Jesus said not only that he was going to die, but the actual particular manner in which he was going to die. Here's what I find amazing. He's prepared. He's ready. He is telling his disciples because he cares for them, but he's also demonstrating his divinity because he knows exactly when, he says in two days, he knows exactly how by betrayal, and he knows the actual method that they're going to use to snuff his life out. It's by crucifixion. He knows and yet he voluntarily submits. He's prepared to offer himself. And the thing that I love about this is it shows that even though Jesus is very meek, he is firmly in control. He's marching to his own destruction. Now, it doesn't appear that he's in control because of our second point. While Jesus is prepared for suffering and death, the Jewish leaders are prepared to impose that suffering and death because they prepare for his murder. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says then, and I think the then is, after Jesus preached what he preached in Matthew 25, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be rioting among the people. The Jewish leaders plot and scheme. And we see here specifically that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, made up specifically of the chief priests, the elders, and uh, who's not mentioned here are the scribes. Those three classes of people make up the Sanhedrin. And that Jewish Supreme Court decides that Jesus must die but they're worried about the wrath of the crowds and they're not worried at all about the wrath of God. They will reach out to touch this one who has worked as God's agent, who is God in the flesh, and they say, we're going to kill him. We're not worried about the consequences. But they decide that it's expedient to not act upon these desires right away because of their fear of the crowd. However, their decision to not act miscarries because of what happens in verses 14, 15, and 16. Scroll down just a few verses and see what happens here. It says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Judas here, one of the twelve, takes the initiative to literally sell Jesus out. He's so frustrated with Jesus that he decides that now is the time for action. And the Bible doesn't say specifically why Judas sought to sell Jesus out. Um, we can use a little sanctified common sense, but we need to hold this humbly because the Bible doesn't speak clearly. I think that it's possible, possible, that perhaps Judas thought he was doing a good thing because Jesus just didn't get to the point quick enough. 
Judas wanted to bring about the confrontation between Jesus and the religious structure of his day, and he knew that if he waited on Jesus to get it done, Jesus would take too long. So Judas is trying to hasten the confrontation to let Jesus win. That's possible. I don't really think that that's likely, but it's possible. I think it's this. I think that Judas wanted to ride the glory train. And he begins to realize that all this meekness and humility that Jesus is talking about isn't a show. He really is humble, even humble to the point of death. Judas is ready for him to start talking about crowns and thrones, and he's talking about crosses and death. And he wants to get off this train in he can make a little dough on the side, get a little cheddar, he's going to do it. So for 30 pieces of silver, not a large amount. As a matter of fact, Bible scholars say that this would be the modern day equivalent of about $20. Maybe enough for you to almost fill a tank of gas. In the Old Testament, it was the amount that an owner of an ox owed to another person if his ox gored their slave to death. Cheap. You can get a new slave. It's what was mandated for the owner to give if his ox accidentally gored a slave to death. The Jewish leaders were hesitant, but once they figured out that Jesus had an enemy among his friends, it provided the opportunity for them to strike. While the high leaders people in esteem kind of meet in secret in this posh palace to plan his murder at the same time there is a woman who anoints the same man that they're planning to kill but she does it publicly in a leper's house our third point in verses 6 through 13 is an unnamed woman prepares jesus's body for burial look with me back at verses 6 through 13 well jesus was in bethany at the house of simon a man who had a serious skin disease. A woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial, again predicting his death. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, even in Rock Hill, South Carolina in 2016, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. We have just fulfilled the prophecy by remembering this story. There is this incredible humble. We know that it's Mary of Bethany from the other gospel accounts because this story is actually recorded in three of the four gospels. When Jesus said what she has done will be spoken of, uh, he he didn't take any chances. Three of the gospel writers recorded it. Yet it is a very humble act of service and devotion in this. um, If you notice where verses 6 through 13 occur, it's in between the Jewish leaders conspiring to kill Jesus and Judas selling him out. This act of love and devotion and service is bookended by scheming, plotting, and treachery. And it's included right here to remind us of who Jesus is despite what is going on in the world. Mark says specifically that the perfume costs 300 denarii, which would have been uh, the average year's wage. And so this was a costly sacrifice for her 
to anoint and prepare him for burial. The fourth and final preparation that we see in verses 17 through 19 is preparation that is specifically made for the celebration of the Passover. Verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover so you may eat it? Go into the city to a certain man, Jesus said, and tell him the teacher says, my time is near. I am celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Again, while this is just what appears to be just simple narration about the locale for where Jesus and his disciples will celebrate the Lord's Supper, we see again that Jesus is demonstrating his complete control. He gives these mysterious directions to his disciples to go into this city that they don't live in and to find this guy. We know from the other gospel writers that it's a man who's carrying a water jar, which is not, that's not men's work in Jewish society in the first century. So he had some kind of identifying mark but there's no indication that the disciples know exactly who this guy is. He's not like a disciple, and they've got a secret handshake, you know, blah, 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 you know, chest bump. There's none of that. But Jesus is giving these mysterious instructions to his disciples. They turn out exactly as he has said, and it's another proof of his divinity. Here's what I love. If in the midst of all of this scheming, the Jewish leaders find out that they have an ally among Jesus' friends who really is an enemy... As Jesus comes into the city, that the Jewish uh, religious leaders, that's home territory for them, Jesus has a friend among his enemies. They have a friend among, uh, he has an enemy among his friends, but he has a friend in the city where his enemies have home court advantage. And so we see these four preparations. Jesus prepared to suffer and die. The Jewish leaders happy to prepare for his murder. A woman who prepares his body for burial. And Jesus and his disciples preparing for the Passover. This is all prelude to uh, the main point, the thing that Jesus is wanting to bring home to us. And that's our, our second point, that Jesus focuses on the true meaning of the Passover. He focuses on the true meaning of the Passover. Now, Obviously, by the way that that is worded, there is a, if there is a true meaning of the Passover, there is a false meaning of the Passover too. And the point that Jesus is going to make is that the Passover makes no sense if Jesus is not front and center in your understanding of the Passover. But he is the Passover. Everything that's happened beforehand points to him. Everything that happens afterward points to him. And that if you just go through the ritual and the routine, it may not mean anything and you may not actually be celebrating the Passover in your celebration of the Passover. We see several things that Jesus teaches as he focuses in on this. And we begin in verses 20 through 25 as Jesus teaches about sin and self-examination. Sin and self-examination. Look at verses 20 through 25 with me. So the disciple, I'm sorry, when evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. And Jesus thought it would be polite dinner conversation while they were eating to say, I assure you, one of you will betray me. Think about that for just a second. I don't mean this in any kind of sarcastic sense, but it's amazing that one of the disciples didn't choke right there. These are the special forces. These are the Marines. These are the people that are his closest and most intimate allies and yet jesus while they're eating 
doesn't talk about South Carolina football. He doesn't talk about how beautiful the weather is. He doesn't talk about this fascinating, you know, chili recipe. He says, one of you in this room will betray me. Shocking statement. Look what happens, verse 22. Understatement of the year. Deeply distressed, each one, every single one of the disciples began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Could it be me? Jesus replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it has been written, as it's been predicted, as it's been prophesied about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it. Jesus told him. Shocking announcement. He'll be betrayed by his friends. And it shocks, I think because like the disciples, we've not stopped to examine our own heart. You know, we sit there and go, kind of like the other disciples, it is not me. There's a lot of things I might do, but that is one that I wouldn't do. It, it, might, it might be you, or it might be you, it might be you. Not me. Friends, I'm here to tell you, myself included, we are all Judases. Because anytime we sin, the heart of that sin is betrayal and rebellion. It's betrayal and rebellion. Judas is not content for Jesus to be the Jesus that Jesus wants to be. Judas wants Jesus to be the Jesus that he wants him to be. And so he says, for 30 pieces of silver, I'll force his hand or I'll get off this train. And, and friends, this is not the only time in the Bible that this is told. We, we, get, we get astounded that for 20 bucks, Judas would sell out Jesus. God the Father was sold out for far cheaper in the garden. Adam and Eve sold him out for an apple, or a proverbial apple. A lot less than 20 bucks. What's even more distressing is that you and I sell him out for free. Oh, for this fleeting moment of pleasure. Oh, for to be unhindered and to do what I want because my freedom and what I think is best is truly what is best. Nobody has to offer you money to rebel. Nobody has to offer you money to betray. And for us who live on this side of the cross and we know of Jesus' sacrifice, looking back, not prospectively, looking back, knowing historically that it's happened, What's your price? What's your price? A piece of fruit? A $20 bill? And yet as Jesus issues this statement about sin, that sin is rebellion, sin is betrayal, and therefore we're all guilty of it. As Jesus makes this statement, I want you to see what happens to the disciples. They all have this moment of searching self-distrust. They, they all have to go to Jesus privately and go, I don't think it's me. But can you clarify? It's, it's not me, right? 
I don't think I would do this. I can't imagine that I would do this. It's not me. Surely not I, Lord. And my concern in this day and age, when we are front and center about our rights, that we don't ever stop to think about our sin and how wickedly deceptive we are. See, as Christians, we're really good at explaining our sin away. This is right. I want it. So there's, there's nothing that can be wrong with it. I, I, I need it. And God is, by forbidding me, he, God is evil by keeping me from what I want. The point here is that before taking the Passover, because all this is happening during the meal, the, the, the Passover celebration happens after the meal, before taking the Passover as Jesus intended for it to be received, his disciples needed to honestly and humbly search their own hearts for sin. And that self-examination caused them to go to Jesus to say, Am I the man? Am I the one? Am I going to sell you out? The story concludes with this absolutely bold-faced hypocrisy. Perhaps feeling the pressure to conform, Judas himself goes to Christ and asks the question. He says, is it me? And at the whole time, he's got the silver coins jingling in his pocket. He's got the blood money on him. And he goes, he asks the same question that all the disciples ask. Oh, wait, it's not quite the same. Because the other 11 said, surely not I, Lord. He can't bring himself to call him that. He says, surely not I, Rabbi. Not a bad title for Jesus, but completely inadequate. He is more than a teacher. He is God in the flesh. In verses 26 through 30, we see that Jesus teaches about sacrifice and substitution. This is where he gets into his teachings on the Lord's Supper, translating the Passover into a Christian observance. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread Jesus blessed it, Jesus broke it, Jesus gave it to the disciples and said to them, take it and eat it, this is my body. Then Jesus took a cup and after Jesus gave thanks, Jesus gave it to them and said, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, but I tell you from this moment, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. And after singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Friends, I think it's very important for us to notice the verbs, and I tried to emphasize that in my reading of the Scriptures. Jesus took the bread. Jesus blessed the bread. Jesus broke the bread. Jesus gave the bread. Jesus urged the disciples with the command to take and eat. In the Lord's Supper, He is the host. We are the recipient. We do not perform the Lord's Supper. We receive it. God gives it to us. He has done all the work. And in this passage, Jesus does something incredible. He identifies himself with the Old Testament sacrificial lamb. Though he is not a lamb, he is the Son of God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And the Old Testament taught the importance of a substitute sacrifice, that a blood, the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb would substitute for you. But since man was unable to offer a perfect sacrifice, an adequate substitute was needed. Because it, the Old Testament was a bloody mess. Thousands of 
animals weekly, monthly, tens, hundreds of thousands annually. And so it was temporary and there was a constant need to re-sacrifice. And Jesus steps up and he offers himself a human sacrifice, a divine sacrifice. And just like in the Passover, taking of that Passover lamb keeps the angel of death away in his sacrifice Jesus keeps the angel of death away by taking our sin for us. There's a second incarnation. God becomes flesh, but then Jesus, as our sacrifice, becomes sin. He becomes the literal embodiment of sin, bearing the sins of the world, and then bearing the full brunt of the Father's perfect and holy wrath. Friends, I I cannot tell you what a terror that would be, to feel all of God's holy wrath and that Jesus bears that penalty so that there is nothing else for us to bear. Friends, it it is not because you are good. It is because he is good and he has borne the penalty for you that you do not have to bear it when you trust in him by faith. So just as Israel associated their deliverance from Egypt with the Passover lamb, celebrated for millennium, Now the new covenant people will identify their redemption not by the Passover meal, but by the Lord's Supper. Jesus, as a new Moses, is radically stating that the Passover's intention was always to point forward to the perfect sacrifice that would one day be offered. To be done with raising flocks of animals simply for sacrifice, for the one perfect sacrifice that will satisfy the wrath of God in his righteous demands. And that from this point forward, the Lord's Supper will point back to his sacrifice and point forward to the party in heaven that Jesus alludes to when he will finally drink from the cup again in his Father's eternal kingdom. He teaches about sacrifice and a substitute dying in our place. Finally, in verses 31 through 35, Jesus teaches about renunciation and restoration. Renunciation and restoration. Then Jesus said to them, now there might be one of you that's going to betray me, but tonight all of you will run away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. I solemnly swear to you, Jesus said to him, Tonight, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all, every single one of the disciples said the exact same thing. In Jesus' death, we cannot identify with his wrath-bearing sacrifice. We don't know. We can't fathom. We think too low of God to fully understand the terror of bearing his holy, perfect wrath. We can't identify with that but we can identify with the betrayal that he suffered, not only from Judas, but the scattering of every single one of his friends. Now, on the scale of Jesus' suffering, 
the betrayal by a bunch of feeble-hearted disciples doesn't compare to the massive weight of bearing the wrath of God. But doesn't this little thing over here add to all the suffering that he's already going through? I mean, these are the people that he is giving his life for, people who have staked their claim on Christ, and yet they don't have the courage to stand with Jesus in his fulfillment of prophecy. It's terrible. Despite being his closest friends, and in spite of being told clearly that he is offering his life as a substitute sacrifice for them, every single one of his closest friends will run away and pretend like they don't know who he is. And Jesus tells them, it's not just the one who betrays me, but all of you will be guilty of abandoning me. Yet again, he demonstrates his divinity because in the very same breath that he says that all of you will be scattered, he says that after his resurrection, he will gather them back, that he's going before them to Galilee. He knows where they will go. They're going to go home. After the crucifixion, they don't know what to do. They go home. They go back to fishing. And Jesus says, when you get there, I'll have beat you there. And I'll get you back together. And he's demonstrating his great mercy and that his plan is not sidetracked by his crucifixion. Well, Peter, being a kind of a spokesperson for the group, has a really big problem with what Jesus has just said. Because it's obvious that Jesus has vastly underestimated at least one of the disciples. Figures it. Maybe all of them. Not me. Not me if I have to die. And I think Peter actually really meant what he said. Because you remember when they come to arrest him in the garden, Peter pulls out his sword. He's like, all right, let's go. He's really, you don't want him in your army because he tries to kill a guy and all he does is cut his ear off. That's really bad. Uh, you wouldn't want him on your baseball team. You wouldn't want him in your army. Um, he's, he's ready to die and he can't, it's just, it's not good. The problem with Peter is that he did not know himself as well as Jesus knew his heart. And Peter, in his comments, betrays some prideful characteristics that should never be true of a disciple. Three things, quickly. Number one, Peter was too confident in himself. Self-confidence is, you've got to watch out. Number two, he was condescending to others. Not me, maybe you, not me. And those are always flip sides of the same coin. The person who is too confident in himself is almost always condescending to others. But third, and most fatally, he contradicted what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will betray me. He goes, nope. Have you seen my resume? I ain't gonna do it. Jesus says, let me put my hand on the Bible, even though it's not written yet, and swear. I solemnly tell you the truth. And now Jesus adds some detail. He says, tonight, this is not indefinitely in the future. Tonight. Now, tonight could be 12 hours, 13 hours. He says, no, let me, let me, let me be a little bit more specific. Before the rooster crows, so before 3 a.m. So whatever time it is we're having this dinner, he goes, Peter, maybe, maybe six hours, seven hours? And then you're not just going to do it once, you're going to do it three times. Don't ever protest what the Lord tells you because then he'll give you the specifics, and it's always far worse than you think it would have been. Jesus responds quickly and says, Peter, you want some more details? I'll I'll give you some details. Here's what you're going to do exactly. And again, prophesying graciously and gently and in love, saying you're going to fall away. 
but ultimately it's not dependent upon you. I'm God, you're not. I will gather you together. So here this morning, this begins our exploration of the last section of Matthew's glorious gospel. And as we get to this story, this narrative of the crucifixion, it is both tragic and beautiful. It's tragic because we see the depth of man's sinfulness. It's beautiful because we see the willingness, the voluntary nature of Christ's sacrifice. And that's our story. Last time I checked, last time I looked in the mirror, I had a sinner looking back at me. Now, a redeemed sinner, my sins are forgiven, and I have His Spirit in me to help me fight off sin, but I am a redeemed sinner. I need a sacrifice on my behalf. And you do too if you want to be right with God. Don't just assume because you're born in the right socioeconomic status or the right country or the right zip code or who your parents are that you're right with God. Nobody gets in that way. Everybody gets in by faith. We trust. We don't time warp back to the cross to watch Jesus be crucified and to be there at the tomb when he's resurrected. By faith, We trust what God has revealed and we put our trust that we trust that we can't get there on our own, that we can only get there on Christ's credentials. That's called saving faith. We believe that Jesus is God and by faith we trust that this is how we get there. Not by anything that we do. And so just as the disciples received what Jesus gave, specifically in this story, The bread and the cup, symbolizing his body broken for our sin, but for our redemption. Have you received the sacrifice that God has offered? Now, that's not a general one-size-fits-all thing. If you are here today and you feel conviction, you feel the Spirit working in your life in such a way, going, things are not right for you. You dare not leave without consulting the scriptures, without consulting a mentor or a counselor to find out if you have indeed put your faith in Christ. You see, on Tuesday, we will elect the next president of the United States. But every Sunday, we get to vote for a king. And we vote for him by the way that we live. Not for our glory, but for His. So who have you voted for? Are you still wearing the crown on your own head? Or have you laid your crown at His feet because He's the only one worthy of having it? Pray with me, please. Father, it is easy for us to recognize the gift of life that you have given to us. We all woke up this morning on this side of the ground and for that we're very grateful. But Father, there is another gift of life that you give by faith, by trusting in the sacrifice of your Son. Father, I can only pray that everyone here this morning has put their trust in you. I fully recognize the deceptiveness of our own hearts that we can think that we are okay when indeed we are not. 
And I pray that you grant to us the humility to examine our lives, to think about the deceptive wickedness of sin, and to turn it over to you. You are the only one that can deal with it. We cannot deal with it on our own. There is no self-help book that will eradicate our sin problem. But there is a Savior who willingly allowed His body to be broken and His blood to be poured out that we might have life in His name, that we might have forgiveness in His name, that Your Spirit might come to live inside of us to cause us to walk in a new manner of life. So Father, I pray that You help us to look unto You as the only Savior of mankind. And for those of us that have trusted You, for us to not make Your sacrifice in vain by living how we want, but that we recognize that we are bought with a price with the precious blood of Christ to live for you and for your glory alone. So Father, as we sing, as we depart, help us to think about the things that we need to think about. Allow your spirit to work in our hearts and our minds and our wills to bend us to you. For you are a great and glorious and indeed the only King in whose name we pray.